It's Dear Instructional Designer, Episode 22. Hey everyone and welcome back to Dear Instructional Designer, the show about the instructional design journey. I'm your host, Kristen Anthony. It's season two of Dear ID, a season of episodes on the tools, tech, and solutions that IDs use all across the spectrum. This episode may seem a bit off track for the season, but I'm super excited to bring you my conversation with Jennifer Madrill, the founder of Designers for Learning, a nonprofit dedicated to getting instructional designers hands-on practice through service learning. If you're an instructional design student or otherwise an accidental instructional designer, as so many of us are, you're likely asking yourself how you can gain experience. In fact, I know that's what you're asking yourself because I read all your questions on the instructional design subreddit. I often point to making your own challenges, but Designers for Learning is a way for you to learn while you design and solve real-world problems. Without further ado, Here's my conversation with Jennifer. Let's get started. Jennifer, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Oh, this is great. This is really how I, I, my journey in instructional design, when I was a student, I started doing webcasts, podcasts, blogging. So this is definitely up my alley. I'm very, very happy to join you. Awesome. Awesome. So before we sort of dig in, Could you tell us a little bit about your journey so far in instructional design? Absolutely. Um, Like a lot of people in our field, I I came at it from a different career. I think that I used to think I was kind of a non-traditional learner, but I'm finding that I'm pretty actually traditional in my in my journey. I, I came through an MBA program. I was an insurance underwriter uh, where I dabbled a little bit in doing instruction, but I didn't know what I was doing. I had no formal training in it. And then this was probably in the um, mid 2000s when online learning was becoming all the rage. And so I took a look at my life. Am I in the career I'm interested in? And uh, the answer was no. And so I explored all kinds of avenues. I was living in New York City at the time, and I looked at the programs uh, that were available there. And then I thought, you know what? I'm interested in online learning, and so I may as well practice what I will hopefully one day preach and teach. And so I sought out at the time the premier instructional design programs that happened to have an online learning uh, ability for me to, to, to pursue my master's. And so I came to Indiana University's program pretty quickly on, and that's where I got my master's. And then kind of that continuing that same mind frame when it came time to conclude that program, I said, okay, do I want to go out and be an instructional designer or do I want to go down more of the research and kind of faculty avenue? And I, the answer to that was yes. And so again, dug in at that point, we're talking like 2007 timeframe and came across Old Dominion University, um, had a wonderful program with very well-known, dedicated staff in, in instructional design. That was really their focus. And uh, so I, t- I enrolled in that program and completed that about three or four years ago. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I think you're our first researcher, actually, which is cool. I love showcasing all of the different pathways. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's funny because I probably don't do as much research as I thought I would if I if I truly had gone into a faculty position. I try to now I guess you'd call when once we get talking today, you'll you'll understand more, more why I think this I'm more of a hybrid between a true faculty position and uh, an instructional designer. I've kind of carved out a new a new path for myself that didn't exist when I graduated. Oh, that's even better, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. So, Jennifer, uh, one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have you on the show is that one of the gospels that I preach often is the need to make a great portfolio as a way to gain relevant experience. And you actually founded Designers for Learning, which sounds like an awesome opportunity. And I, I gosh, I wish I'd known about this um, before. <laughs> but uh, could you tell us a little bit about what Designers for Learning is and who it's for? Exactly. So when we started talking, um, I, I mentioned, I, you, you know, you're coming from a place of, that's very near and dear to my heart. When I was in my master's program, I, I began blogging because being an online student, if, if you've ever been one or if anyone who's listening has ever been one, it can be very lonely. Mm -hmm. You do most of your work sitting in front of a computer screen. And I, I didn't feel a sense of community. And so I thought, well, I better jump into the online world and try to find that community and be part of it. And so I, I found that home through blogging and then also through through doing webcasts. And so I kind of became created an online presence, which isn't directly getting to your question as far as a portfolio, but I think the two go together. Mm. And to me, it was really important for me to, as I said, I came from a different career, a different background. So I wasn't known in the education field at all. So by me blogging about things that I was doing in my coursework and things that I was doing to try to, to get experience in the instructional design field, I, I was able to build a community community and then an online presence through the blogging and also doing the webcast. And then as um, actually, I think it was a class project in my master's program, they really drilled home. We, you need to cre create a portfolio before you graduate. You know, mm -hmm. That was a, just a requirement. And so I, I went out and purchased the URL for jennifermadrill.com and um, started storing artifacts there. And that's where my CV is and my resume and I think I have endorsements and things like that, that work as, again, kind of requirements within the program. But I think that's really important because, as we all know, if you meet a new person, you Google their name and it's better for you to have put out information about yourself than to find, you know, a college picture of you, <laughs> you know, with a table of beers in front of you or something like that. So that was really, really important, that whole idea of having an online presence and having something that I curated and put out into the world that represented what I thought was was important about education, what was important about instructional design. And I'm really, uh, as you said, so I kind of want to your gospel that you preach, and I, I really am adamant about it. I, I do run into people who say, what about privacy? And what if you, and you know, sometimes you have to take positions on things you're talking about. What mm -hmm. if that rubs some people the wrong way? And I've really, honestly, I've been doing this well over 10 years. I've, I've never had that be an issue. I've mm -hmm. never had gotten into like a troll flame war, you know, with anybody over the issues I'm talking about. I, I, I it's not that I self-edit to the point that I'm not really expressing my my what I'm thinking is important. But again, it's just that being genuine, showing what you believe in, what your instructional philosophy is, what your educational philosophy is, mm -hmm. showing artifacts that, yes, I can practice what I preach. I can actually deliver. And then tying into the second part of your question beyond the portfolio, I felt the same way about the students that were coming out of our design programs. I was seeing there was a huge gap that students really weren't having the opportunity to engage in real life 
instructional design experiences, and then in turn, not having any place to be able to share resources, artifacts, things that they came upon that they wanted to be able to share with a prospective employer. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that came through when I graduated, I became an adjunct faculty at Old Dominion University, and I taught about five courses, and one of them was a consulting skills for an instructional designer. And it's kind of a unique class. I don't think a lot of programs even offer it. But what was really sad is we had really, really strong people in the program and really strong faculty. But w- when you spend all your time in classes about theory and, and to some extent research and doing some hypothetical type cases or things like that, you really don't have a lot of time to say, can I really do this job? <laughs> and what are, the, what are the skills required? And so that's really why a friend, several friends and myself created Designers for Learning as a nonprofit to give students the opportunity. It's, it's a serv- their service learning opportunity. So we work with nonprofits to come up with some type of instructional need that will solve some type of problem that instruction can solve. And people volunteer or or join us as service learners, work on the design project, and then at the culmination of the we run them along semesters so people can um, tie it into their coursework. When that concludes, then you have an artifact to add to your portfolio. That is so awesome in so many ways. And I have like a ton of questions to ask you. But um, the, the first thing I want to say is that I love you talking about sort of the, the consulting skills that go along with instructional design work. Um, that's something that a lot of our previous guests have talked about. And I actually just read a great Medium post from a Medium publication called Dear Design Student, and I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes, but a guy called Mike Montero, who is um, big in the sort of design field, he talks exactly about this this idea that your schooling has to or should also prepare you for the business part of, of design work. So that's amazing. But the other thing that I wanted to sort of transition to is that I myself have been kicking around ideas for a bit now, wanting to emulate other design communities such as the Game Jam community or code learning communities such as Free Code Camp that I've talked about before on the show and, and in my blog. And it seems like you guys are a great way to sort of fill that fill those spaces because that's that's sort of what you came into it thinking about. Um, and so my my question is, do you guys, beyond the, the service learning aspect, do you act as sort of a, a learning and practice community? So, for example, the free code camp experience sort of starts learners off with small challenges and you have to go through a series of these challenges before they even let you work on a nonprofit project. Do you guys sort of have a community and experience like that or are you more laser focused on the, the service learning, the actual work of, um, you know, creating a product for the nonprofits. It is so interesting. This is a, I, I could talk for hours about this. So you'll have to make sure if I go off in tangents, you'll have to bring me back. But what you're mentioning right now. So what, as I mentioned, we had um, several, they were all, everybody who started Designers for Learning, we all were either faculty or we, the only one we had was a PhD student. He's now graduated from Penn State. So mm-hmm. we very much had this um uh, what do our students need to learn and, and how can we do it? And so it's kind of gets kind of a meta conversation here because we're like designing experiences for people to learn how to design. <laughs> and so certainly every 
everything you're talking about is this whole idea of um, you know, kind of empowering the learners to you know, give them a challenge. And then mm-hmm. you have to decide how vague is the challenge going to be? How, you know, what kind of parameters are you going to set around things? And so we had what we called pilots. Our first couple of service learning projects were very open-ended. And we let people work. And we actually, at that point, were even kind of setting up teams. Well, then we realized setting up teams became a little weird because people didn't know each other. Mm-hmm. And then it should, should it be more organic, which is all, also a hard thing to have happen. Right. So we're on, I think, our fifth iteration of our service learning project um, right now. And so every time they've morphed a little bit and always a component of it is this peer-to-peer, how can we, as I just mentioned, how can we give people a challenge and give them just the right amount of scaffolding and support mm-hmm. so they're not because as we've talked about, a lot of them are novices. They're, they're, you know, so there's a whole design, I, you know, working on a design project is, is new for most of them. And then also being in a virtual environment, they don't have the benefit of ever meeting at a coffee shop and talking about things. Right. So how can we give folks a, a long enough leash without them, you know, completely getting lost? And so we've kicked around this exactly as you're talking about whether it be, you know, free co-cam and I even go way back to like how even Drupal was started and, mm-hmm. you know, those types of, um, of experiences where people are motivated by their self-interest to join the community. And from that, then, you know, they, they take it to build something that then others can use. So right now, rightly or wrongly, our current projects are quite structured, uh, where we have design requirements. This is what needs to be created. It needs to be on this platform. So when everybody's done, all of your artifacts are stored here. We recommend these tools. (laughs) I'm not saying that's the right answer. Mm -hmm. And we would really love, and especially something you mentioned as you were asking the question is, we have no prerequisites in our current course. And I think what you're describing would be a great way to vet folks and also at the same time, backfill some of those skill gaps Mm -hmm. that they may have. And we just, it's something we'd love to chew on. And we just haven't had the opportunity to to do that piece of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, as I said, just kind of working through every time we finish a new service learning, uh, kind of tweak things, every time we end one, we spend several months, how should we change it based on feedback, based on how things turned out. And it, you hit on such an important um, nerve for me right now is how do you create these experiences with folks who don't have a lot of prerequisite knowledge to be able to kind of do the tasks you're talking about? How mm-hmm. do you backfill that? How do you, uh, without being too confining? Right. And what we've, what's really interesting too, talking about community, we really do our we, we think we're doing the right things and we don't really get a lot of traction. We have um, like LinkedIn groups we've started. We have a Facebook group. We certainly use Twitter to the full extent with hashtags for the MOOC and, you know, try to get folks to um, share with, uh, with the others where, how you can find them on Twitter. And we, don't, we tend not to get a lot of traction. And I don't know if it goes back to what I was talking about before that there, there, there's not everybody is excited to share what they're doing online. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, we kind of make an assumption because those of us that are doing it, that everybody will want to do it. And we do kind of tend to hit up against a wall where a sizable percentage of the people we work with just aren't interested in that part of the learning experience. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on that piece of it? You know, that not everybody is like you and me. Uh, <laughs> that not no, everybody wants I, to blog. Not everybody wants to, uh, you know, to have a webcast yeah, or whatever. I just wrote a blog post about this, about how my ideas for, are not for everybody. And it was prompted by 
a great podcast episode by Todd Henry on his podcast, The Accidental Creative. And the thing that he talked about was, and, and it, it goes back to, I think, how a lot of people sort of get into instructional design. Most of us are accidental instructional designers. Totally okay. Nothing wrong with that. But I think a lot of people, and I'm sort of experiencing this in my new job, and it, it bummed me out a little bit, but a lot of people, it's it's this is sort of a nine to five thing, right? You come to work and you do what they ask you to do, and then you go home and you work on the things that you're actually passionate about, whatever those are. Um, and so not everybody is like totally psyched to continue learning and practicing and and trying to be the the best instructional designer that they could be because their their passion is for other things and and this is just it's a it's a means to an end and and I I say that without without being judgmental at all it's just it's just how it is um and so I I run up against exactly the same barriers that you guys have trying to start community trying to get people to to share and critique each other's work. And I, yeah, that is well, tough. When we, when, we, when we talk about instructional design and, and evaluating the success of an experience, there are two things we, we always talk about. The efficacy in terms of are your learning outcomes achieved and your desire, you know, what you desired people to be able to walk away with. Mm-hmm. And then the second component is, is, is efficiency. And I think efficiency is where it comes in, as you're saying, especially with adult learners where the accidental designer who's now trying to build their skills, they're very likely uh, working professionals. Very often they have families mm-hmm. and they just want to get it get the most they can for the time that they have to devote to it. And these things take time. Building community takes time right. and figuring out where you want, what where your kindred spirits are and where you want to, uh, what community is right for you. Mm-hmm. Those things all take time. And I'll put in a plug for, you know, back in the day, 2005, I was very active in a community called EdTech Talk. And um, if, I think if you go to EdTech Talk's Twitter, I was just like twitter.com slash edtech talk. I think they're like 30,000 last time I checked people who followed them. So it grew to be, you know, a significant community, but it died out. It it just takes, it's like a living, breathing thing. Mm -hmm. And you need to have people, even though we were really, really into it, it just, people move on. They Mm -hmm. have other commitments, other things they're working on. And so it's really, to me, it's, it's a really odd thing in, in some almost like an oxymoron, can you create an informal community? I don't even know. Right. I don't even know if that is, can be a thing because you know, it, so the successful ones to me are those that are people are purely self motivated to join because they're for self interest. There's something they're going to get out of it, and at the same time, they're going to give to others. There's going to be some type of uh, currency, you know, network currency. You're giving because you, uh, you, or others are receiving because you're giving. Mm-hmm. That takes time mm-hmm. and is really hard to quote. And I'm putting in air quotes that you can't see to design that right. community. And yeah. we haven't hit the, we haven't hit the magic formula yet. But I love I'd love to talk to you about that more when we're done here or whenever. Is like ideas on on how that can uh, can be, best be done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's something that uh, Jane Bozarth actually did a did a, a research paper I think about about how um, yeah I mean you can't you can't just sort of force communities into being you just kind of have to try and facilitate them and and you're absolutely right is that there there is a a time component to it um and sort of if you just keep have a have a great product as you guys do and keep you know keep singing the gospel of it then over time you'll you'll gain traction but it's not gonna happen yeah. super quickly oh, yeah. yeah so 
sort of on that same note, I read that you guys are reaching out to schools to get sort of whole classes or cohorts involved in this, which I think is, I think that's an excellent idea. And it sounds like a real win-win if I was in an instructional design program, like this would be amazing. So how is that working out for you guys? You know, it's really interesting. As I said, we started out faculty seeing a need. And so we just assumed we'd open our doors and faculty would be pounding on them saying, you know, we've got a class and we need a thing. But at the end of the day, these experiences are very time consuming for Mm -hmm. faculty, even if we're doing a lot of the back end as far as coming up with the project and vetting a nonprofit or, or some social issue or whatever it is that we're tackling. And so we've had, it's been more one-off where, for example, BYU has, as many programs do, and I'm just going to use them as an example, they have a practicum or an internship requirement as as well as University of Tampa comes to mind. So we've had on a one-off basis where we've been contacted by a student who then I work with a faculty member. And this is really, we, we don't really encourage it because it's so much work on my end, mm-hmm. but we um, have had requests from from students who say, can I use this for an internship? And if so, are you willing to fill out this evaluation sheet for me? And we have done it on a um, one-off basis. And I have not been successful really reaching out to faculty saying, will you partner with us if you're having, example, for example, an evaluation class, mm-hmm. our projects, I think, are absolutely a goldmine for a teacher who's teaching an evaluation class because we have all these artifacts now that have been created with a very distinct let of, uh, list of criteria of what, the, what is supposed to happen in this instruction. So creating a rubric or whatever it may be for an evaluation class to then just sink their te- teeth into ours that's maybe that's where you saw my request go out. I was I was searching for faculty and I had no takers, mm. which I think is really sad because <laughs> I think it's just as I said at the very beginning of this conversation, students need to sink their teeth into real life design challenges, yeah. and it's just a ton of work. And then you think back, you, everybody does things because they're self-motivated to do so. And as I said, I think it's just a lot of work for the faculty to redesign their course to figure out a way to fit us in. And it's just something I think over time, we'll just have to keep working on. It's just not going to come quite as organically and naturally as I thought it would. Yeah, that Um, seems nuts though. Like if you have a a practicum class or a capstone class, why not partner with somebody who's already doing part of the work? Exactly. And I think yeah. for us as a nonprofit, um, you know, we're just new. We, we Our 501c3 is about a year and a half old, 18 months or so. And we were officially founded as a nonprofit, but it, it takes a while to get the 501c3 piece. So if you add all the months together, it's been about about two years. And so there's that's, that's part of it. Um, and then we really think that again, looking at the business side of our nonprofit or how we're going to be sustainable and keep going, mm-hmm. that everything you just described, like if we could find the top, the, you know, the top 15, let's say, instructional design programs, and then we would be the preferred vendor of choice or whatever you want to call us for the for practicum opportunities, that could be a total win-win for them as well as us. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to take the opportunity here. I know a lot of people on the subreddit and a lot of people on Twitter, a lot of people that I meet are either instructional design students now or looking to become instructional design students, you guys take this idea to your program and run with it. That's like, this is an amazing opportunity. Um, And I think that if we can get the word out through the students, then we can really have something. So I want to encourage all of you students out there to investigate this, get in contact with the um, designers for learning 
and um, see what you can do to encourage your school to actually get you some real hands-on experience there. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's switch gears just a little bit here. Uh, I have a couple of questions. What what kinds of projects do participants work on, and how do you guys sort of vet the nonprofits that you offer to participants, so to speak? These are fantastic questions. <laughs> and honestly, as I said, we really just jumped in. We did not have a business plan. We just we knew we had a good idea. It, it would. It, we we decided. We're going to make educated guesses on how we should start things. So yeah, yeah. to your point, how do you vet nonprofits? I'm going to kind of take the second part of your question and, and start there. Mm-hmm. Our original idea was to create designers for learning as like a match.com. So we would, we, our thought was we're going to go out to a bunch of nonprofits. We're going to get an RFP or, or a request for proposal on projects that they think they need. Then we're going to have a whole roster of design students or those that have recently graduated and feel they need experience or even those who just want to con- contribute and give back that they could then go to this website and literally be like match.com. We would match them up and off they go. Mm-hmm. And it was so naive because anyone who's done any type of project work, design, you know, instructional design or whatever knows that the vetting process is huge. And as you all know, going back to our conversation on consulting skills, one of the first things you do is to define your scope Mm -hmm. and what your needs are. And that just takes a tremendous amount of time. And so we pretty quickly realized, well, maybe that's a good dream for the future. (laughs) We'll set that on the back burner. And we decided we partnered with, uh, we found a very pioneering nonprofit who really got the idea that service learning is a two-way street. The students are very willing to contribute to help you achieve your mission or what you're looking um, for for the instructional need to to be. But at the same time, they're learning. And that's why we really latched onto this idea of service learning. Mm -hmm. It's it's a, a dual mission for us that we're helping the students get experience. And at the same time, the um, the deliverables that they're creating is, is going back to the nonprofit, which then requires a lot of time for the nonprofit. And we asked, uh, for example, on our first project, we worked with the uh, Grace Centers of Hope, which is uh, a nonprofit in Pontiac, Michigan, that has an adult education program for those that are in their recovery. It's an uh, on-site one-year recovery. And for those that haven't completed their GED, mm-hmm. they're required to take education courses while they're in the recovery p- program. And so we worked with them on what do you need? What types of instructional products do you need? And then we'll help you create them. But you need to join us four times during the semester to come on a webcast to to talk to our students. You need to be able to come on a couple times a week on a discussion board and answer questions that come for, from students. And so we are asking a lot. And so as you're, you know, you again, your question about vetting, there aren't a lot of nonprofits that probably have the time to do what we're asking. And so we're pretty upfront when with anybody we work with, whether it's a volunteer or whatever, in saying what we think will be required of them. Mm-hmm. And um, so that whole idea of the match.com, it, it just, it didn't work because it's just a lot, it, it's, it's a lot more than, um, I don't know if you've heard of, have you ever heard of the organization Taproot Foundation? Yes. And so we thought we were going to be the Taproot Foundation for service learning. And it's really interesting when you kind of, they have actually have some books that they've put out on how they work. They're very selective on the nonprofits that they work with. Mm-hmm. They have very, very defined projects in terms of the scope and what the needs are in terms of the uh, people that volunteer on the projects. And that just takes a lot of time. So that, anyway, long, long, long story short, 
we decided to kind of get away from the idea of a nonprofit that we're working with and instead look at more of a social cause or a social need. And as I mentioned, Grace Centers of Hope really fits into that adult basic education realm, that segment that is very underserved. Um, there are folks that are trying to get their GED. There's folks that are um, just trying to get better jobs. They're maybe you know, making minimum wage and um, they need to build their skills. And so that's really been our kind of niche that we worked on. Mm-hmm. So we look more at an educational segment rather than looking at individual nonprofits. And that's where we're hanging our hat right now. And we could work, I think, for, for years. Unfortunately, the need is so big that that's probably what we're going to continue to chew on for, for, for quite a while. Okay. Here's a stupid idea that I have. I want, I want to throw this out here and see if you guys We love have. stupid ideas. <laughs> we, we aren't afraid of trying stupid ideas. We do it all the time. <laughs> so uh, assuming that you guys are not are not creating work for hire, so to speak, is, is there an opportunity for you to take these courses that people are building and then become a sort of on-demand or training-as-a-service organization and have and have that that for-profit branch support your nonprofit. Yeah, this is great. Okay, and I think you mean so the artifacts that the students are creating are eventually going to create like this portfolio of so for example like the Khan Academy. Is that what you're saying? Like right, the, right. Well, if if you if you're creating a yeah, if you're focusing on say adult products, education, yeah, products mm-hmm. for adult education, then yeah, at, at some point you'll have a number of modules that you could then uh, perhaps sell to people who need those just out of the box. It's exactly what our goal is. (laughs) Exactly. That is exactly it. And we've all, we haven't necessarily put the for-profit spin on it yet because everything that the students create are um, open educational resources. So it's all Creative Commons licensed. Okay. So our idea would be to get funding, to set it up. And then certainly nonprofits can charge for for their services, whether it be, and that's kind of a little bit of a challenge and not a little bit. Why, why am I saying a little bit? That's actually a lot of it a challenge. The segment we've chosen, we're talking about adults who <laughs> either don't have jobs or or if they have jobs, it's minimum wage. So it's it's really hard to go to that segment mm-hmm. and ask them to spend even $25 on, on, a, on a class or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. And so even just thinking about who do we charge? What's what's the marketplace, and what does that look like? But to your point, that is exactly what this what we're we're hoping to do. So right now, we would consider us in the design phase, mm-hmm. and we have about I would say um, fifty modules that have been created already, and they align to what are called the college and career readiness standards. So if anyone in the K twelve world that's familiar with Common Core, mm-hmm. it's built off of the back of Common Core, but it's geared toward adults. So even though the curriculum is generally the same, it's the age groups are more condensed, a little bit of different focus. But if you're familiar with Common Core, you'll get the general gist of what college and career readiness standards are. So our idea is for very much like the Khan Academy would do or anybody would do. Uh, if you go in and you, you're you an instructor, you're an educator, you'd say, okay, I want a, an English language arts lesson that's got designed for grade nine. I wanted to focus on such and such topic. And then up pops the, the resources. And then, and again, please stop me if I get way too devil in the details here, but the question then becomes, are the resources you're creating, are these for the instructors who are going to use this? Because adult basic education is typically taught in a face-to-face environment, maybe in a community center or a library, or are you creating online resources that the learner would 
go and use themselves. Mm -hmm. And so right now we're kind of riding the fence a little bit. We're creating resources that are basically lesson plans with then the, the needed resources, handouts, assessments, whatever it may be. But the idea would be we would also take it to that next level and have it where it's true online learning, where the learner could just, like a Khan Academy, log on and, and take the um, the instruction there. And then to the point you were, um, I, as I mentioned, we're kind of in that, what I would consider the design phase of doing that and getting things designed. I think the next logical course for us to offer is an evaluation course. So we're kind of feeding the pipeline. So you, you finish the design work. There's another group that comes through somehow in a service learning course, evaluates them. Then there would be some type of implementation course where they would then take what are, are almost like prototypes at the design phase and then fully, fully develop them, you know, kind of have a, a, a basically a design cycle using the, the resources created by the students. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think that's a, a good direction. And, and I can think of, you know, GED programs, um, extension services at universities here in Texas, we have education service centers. It seems like those would be the type of people who would be the, the, um, the customers. Or yep. something like that. Yep. And uh, the cool part of what, what we've do, been doing on our project, service learning projects, as, as I mentioned, we don't have a nonprofit we work with. We have gone out and reached out to the ed adult education community and our volunteers that are working with us on the design as well as the facilitation of our project are subject matter experts in this field. And so they're kind of our proxy for a client. And just exactly to your point, we're, um, we're reaching out to those who are in community colleges or whatever it may be. And they're actually then members of our subject matter expert team. Okay, nice. So, Jennifer, what kinds of tools and tech do you guys recommend to participants to use to create these um, artifacts? Yeah, this is a really catch-22 question because, as I mentioned, our uh, resources are built to be open educational resources. And so if you spend, have spent any time in that world, you'll probably have come across David Wiley and his work. And he's got the, I think it's the five R's of open, which is, you know, reuse. And <laughs> I can't write off the top of my head, the five R's aren't coming to me like, Whatever the, you know, re, what is it? I should pull it up before we're done here. And I'll certainly give it to you so you can have a link to, uh, to put in your show notes. Yeah. But, and he, he, so there's a, there are five things that make a, um, an open educational resource open. And it's more than just being free. Mm -hmm. It's as far as how people are able to adapt it and reuse it and redistribute it. And so kind of, as I said, the kind of the, the catch 22 of what we're doing is to make it really open for someone to be able to use it if you start locking things down in proprietary software that people can't access to am amend it for their needs, mm -hmm. it becomes not open anymore mm -hmm. and it becomes unusable, unfortunately. So because of that, some people might consider it a constraint of our projects. We consider it more the opportunity that, again, we're trying to keep things open. We use very open technologies. So we are right now, the, uh, the, the lesson plans that I was describing, we ask people to use um, it's called Open Author. It's part of OER Commons, and it really looks like a glorified Google Doc. So there are not a lot of bells and whistles associated with it, but you do have the ability to attach documents. You can link to things. You can embed YouTube videos, those types of things. So you have to get a little bit more creative as the designer, or actually the more the developer, to make that do what you want to do. Mm -hmm. But again, all all of that is it's not. There's a method to our madness that <laughs> we aren't we aren't 
asking or even we're not encouraging people to go out and, for example, use articulate or whatever it may be, because mm -hmm. that that will be very hard for somebody down the road, if not impossible to adapt for their for their needs. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what we're doing now. Um, in the current, our next iteration of our MOOC that will be starting um, this fall or is running this fall, we've partnered with Canvas, which is the LMS that is used by a lot of higher ed institutions now. Mm -hmm. And they are working with us to offer a free for teachers account for everybody in our MOOC to develop um, the, to, to kind of, as we were talking about before, taking it to that next level from being just purely lesson plans to actually being online learning that their learners, um, the, when I say they, the in, adult education instructors could log on with their learners and use in Canvas as true online learning. Nice. Um, and the cool thing about that is Canvas is very committed to open, and I think it's their year of open even right now. Um, I don't know what they'll do next year. I'm assuming <laughs> I don't think they're going to stop uh, promoting open, but they have something called Canvas Commons. And so when you create a lesson, or not a lesson, but an online course or a module or whatever it may be in Canvas, you can select to have that put out in the universe as open educational resources and they host it on Canvas Commons. Mm. And so that's a new bonus challenge that's going to be part of our current MOOC, the, the MOOC that we're having this fall, where students not only are creating lesson plans, but they can then create it on, on Canvas. Nice. Have you guys considered ADAPT, the ADAPT learning framework? And no, I had, no, I'd love to hear about it. I don't know about it. Oh, okay. It is a open, open software framework, and it also has an authoring tool version. Um, and it, it's a little bit more akin to sort of developing in a WordPress or a, or a Drupal rather than, rather than, you know, an Articulate or, or a Lectora, but it's, it's free, it's open source. And, uh, I, I use the framework, but that, that requires some development skills, uh, JavaScript, uh, in particular, but I, I like it. Um, okay. I think it, I think it's really cool. Uh, and, I think it's something that is uh, hopefully poised to uh, be a really great free and open source resource for instructional designers who maybe can't afford the the proprietary tools and and also who maybe just want a course that looks a little different because it's not it's not a slide based yeah, metaphor right. it's more like a a web page so it, the vertical scrolling they're totally okay with that, but it, it also allows you to chunk things and it, it has a lot of different out of the box interactive sort of things, which I worked with Canvas, but it's, it allows you to do, I guess, more, more typical e-learning things that, than a Canvas would. But so that maybe that's something you guys can check out. Absolutely. And then, you know, talking about like stepping away from like what, the tools necessarily, I think it's really also important and again, here's an example where I said I'm putting my my uh, perspective on things, which I know I could get in easily get into an, an argument with with others who disagree. But it, it to me, when you're going through an instructional design program, people tend to either go the design route or they go the development route. Mm -hmm. And so we've kind of hung our hat a little bit more on the design side of things mm -hmm. and not teaching people the. the the tools and the technologies to become developers because I think it is because I so respect the, the skills and the knowledge that are required on the development side. And I see so often myself included people who don't have a lot of training in that area who would maybe be better considered designers mm -hmm. going out doing development that looks just like garbage and it's almost <laughs> unusable. It's not aesthetically pleasing. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And so 
and again, I, I, I could easily be convinced that my ideas and what, what I think in this area are wrong, but I have yet to find the tools other than, as you're saying, kind of those slide-based transition to the next uh, screen tools that a, a person who's not skilled in development is able to to pull off successfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Because I think you kind of come more from the development side of things, don't you? Yes, yes. I, w- so I what would are say that I'm, that I'm focused on development. I, I would say that the the proprietary authoring tools make it easier to make things because you don't have to, you don't necessarily have to, to think about what you're doing. But at the same time, I think to make a course that looks good, has a good user experience, and all of the competencies, and I talk about this all the time, all of the competencies that go into development, that's still, it's still a lot of work, um, no matter what tool you're using. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of self-learning, I think, because if you're only doing it on the job and you never take the time to try and challenge yourself outside of the job or try and you know, expand your learning, go, go and learn about user experience design or go and learn a little bit about graphic design, et cetera. If you never do that, then you're going to be stuck making something that's okay, probably, but I mean, you're, you're never going to be able to sort of push past that if you don't practice. So yeah, it's, that's, that's a toughie. And it, it's it, a toughie. It, it really is. Because like I said, it's really the catch-22. We want to give people the opportunity to test, to spread their wings and mm-hmm. try things. Yet at the same time, we want it to be usable. Yes. And uh, it's if you don't have the skills to develop well, you aren't going to develop well, mm-hmm. <laughs> which then means it's not going to be very usable. And so we kind of go for that and it kind of common denominator. You know, most people are able to use Google Google Docs. And, mm-hmm. and that's why, again, I said the, uh, I, I equate the open author to being something like that, which I think may, may get into a little bit what, what you're talking about, where it's not that screen to screen thing. It's mm-hmm. it, it, how can you use that vertical page to have them progress through things and, and and fork them off into assessments or whatever it may be. But it's not, it's not quote sexy. And again, I'm putting it in air quotes, you know, it's, and I do send some people who join our projects are, have a, a tad bit of a letdown going, oh, I thought this was a class where we're going to walk away knowing how to use, you know, Captivate or whatever, yeah. you know, whatever. And that's, it's just, we, we, that's just not the class. Mm-hmm. That's just not what we're, unfortunately, but I'd, you know, I'd love eventually maybe that would be a great additional experience for us to try to, those skill sets to work on. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was a perfect segue, actually. So I'm wondering how can people who maybe aren't newbie newbies, someone who has maybe been doing this a few years, is there any way for them to volunteer with you guys or, or help out in any way? Absolutely. Two, two distinct avenues. Um, we have all of our projects are um, facilitated by volunteers, subject matter experts in either instructional design and development or whatever it is we're working on. So subject matter experts now in adult, adult education basic education, as I mentioned. So if you have that expertise and you would like to join us as a mentor or a facilitator on our projects, that's certainly one avenue. Now, in our service learning MOOCs, we had a lot of people who were giving back, kind of that taproot idea Mm -hmm. where I have all this expertise, I have all this knowledge, how can I help? And so they came on and did a 
fantastic, some of them did a fantastic job. I think it was even a, a group from, um, they were in a design firm and I'm not sure how many actually completed it, but I think that when they first started anyway, there were four or five people from the design firm who joined just for that purpose to be able to put out an artifact that would be done by an experienced designer. So the, you know that's certainly you know one option as well. But um, what we usually do when we have a new project is we have a call for volunteers and we lay it out almost like a job description. Mm-hmm. And so if you meet the criteria in terms of your academic and work background, we ask folks to submit a very short application. It's usually like an online survey monkey type thing. And then, as I said, we have pretty set parameters on what we're asking people to do for us, how many hours a week they're able to contribute as a volunteer, what the role would be. And that's a really great way for if you are experienced and you want to uh, to give back as a mentor. And actually, we're, we're kicking around ideas. What I When that experience culminates, I send out a letter of um, recognition to the mentors. Again, it's not comp- there's no compensated compensation because they're all volunteers. Mm-hmm. But we found, and I, I used to kind of poo-poo and laugh at digital badges until we did, talking now, circling back to what we were talking about with research, we um, included badging research in our last MOOC. And I was very unaware of how people are using that in LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And again, using it mainly in that service component. So not necessarily really drilling down on what skills and, and knowledge they're gaining within it. But everybody pretty much these days needs to have some type of volunteer work or service work that they can talk about in a job interview or whatever it may be. And we really fit in nicely on that. So we're working now on having a a digital badge for the facilitators, those that are experienced and help us out as volunteers, that they can show that they've given back to the community. And it's a good way to, to document that. Yeah. That's yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. So and we've talked a little bit about this, but how how would you recommend that people spread the word about this experience and, and help other people get on board with Designers for Learning? Yeah, this is great. So again, we're, we're new. We throw things out and see what sticks. It's <laughs> been our deal. So in our last course, we, again, was um, the MOOC was in Canvas. I, I don't know if I did mention that. Our MOOCs are actually on Canvas Network, which oh, okay. is there. It's like an edX. It's, you know, it's the... the um, massive open online course platform. Mm-hmm. And um, so they have a, a user experience survey and um, a welcome survey that they ask folks, you know, well, how did you find out about us? Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of people, it's word of mouth. So here I'm sitting there tweeting every day. I've got Facebook groups and LinkedIn groups, and we have email distribution and what have you. And it really boils down to someone hearing about us and then going back to their university and putting it on their listserv mm-hmm. or, you know, going back, as you're saying, going back to your class and telling your classmates. And suddenly we have 20 students from Purdue or whatever it may be. So really, we, we really try to make our information, I think on our website, we call it a frequently asked questions page. So if you go to designersforlearning.org slash openabemooc, and again, we can put the link in the show notes, it, it will take you to a, a frequently asked questions page. And a lot of what I'm finding is a lot of folks are taking that link and throwing it out on, as I said, their listserv or their blog for their university or whatever it may be. And that's really where we're finding finding people and how people are finding us. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you hear that everybody take the link <laughs> and put it out there. All right. It's the, uh, <laughs> it's the word of mouth. Yeah. It's really funny. I, we've tried all kinds of different things. I, I even have experimented on Facebook. You can promote your posts and Twitter, you can promote posts, mm-hmm. but traction, we really, it'll be really funny. All of a sudden we'll get 
as I said, 20 people from Purdue will sign up and it's like, oh, okay, someone must have put that up on, you know, on Purdue's listserv. Nice. Nice. So tell us a little bit about the next MOOC that is happening. Yeah. So it's the second iteration of us doing a MOOC. Our first couple or first three projects were cohorts of about 25 people. And our, our last one, we had 2,100 people enroll. Wow. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> and as we're recording this before the course starts, so actually when this is what people are listening to, it will actually be in the midst of it several weeks in. Uh, we're at about 700 people who have enrolled um, and we're about four weeks from the course starting. Um, so I would assume we'll be a little bit less. I think we'll probably start out and people can enroll as the as the course is going. So we'll probably start out at about a thousand. And it's very much the same format we had last time. We, we try to replicate a design experience as best we can, uh, again, with this service learning aspect component to it. So we start out with um, giving folks a, a pretty good overview of who the learners are, what the needs are, what the project requirements are. We spend some time talking about open educational resources are what I was describing a moment ago in terms of the five R's and, and why we take the position we do on, on how we design those resources. Um, then students create a prototype uh, using actually Google Docs where it's basically like a design plan. It's mm -hmm. really not a prototype. It really is a design plan. And then once they complete their design plan, through one click, they can import that into Open Author. And then within Open Author, they can create the prototype of, of what this lesson plan is going to look like. Then we go through a, a round of formative evaluation, which is really kind of cool, where you get to do peer-to-peer feedback. So we use all the features within Canvas at our disposal. So we have discussion forums, people can self-form groups, things like that to create their work. So we give folks feedback within Open Author. There's you can there's comment features. There's also an evaluation button where you can go through and select or not a button, or an evaluation feature where you can select little radio buttons based on a rubric to give people feedback. So once that round of feedback has happened, then people internalize it, decide what they're going to change, how they're going to make improvements to their design, and then they turn in their final deliverable. And from there, then they receive a certificate of re recognition that they completed a service uh, design project and then also a digital badge. Okay, awesome. And the MOOC is starting September 12th. Exactly. It starts September 12th. It runs 12 weeks to December 4th, and it's open enrollment, so it, we won't be closing off the enrollment. Obviously, if you, the sooner you start, the more time you'll have to work on the project. Mm -hmm. but we estimate it takes, and not as, we estimate, and then also people have validated through their user experience surveys, it takes about 40 hours to, to complete the course, to okay. complete the project. Okay. Awesome. And so we, we've, talked about, we've talked about how people can give back through the project and, and how people can give back through mentoring or volunteering in other ways. But I know you guys are a nonprofit and uh, I worked in the nonprofit sector for, for quite some time. So let's talk about how, how can people uh, sort of give to support you guys? Oh, yay. <laughs> the shameless plug. Here it comes. You know? Yeah. You know, and fortunately or unfortunately, we worried about what we were doing, our product versus the business. Uh, you know, and I can I can make arguments that that's a fortunately and an unfortunately. So we are completely relying on volunteers to do all our things. And if we want to grow and be sustainable, we have to grow up and you know, write grants and, and, and have fundraising. And so we are doing that in earnest right now. We have um, efforts on 
underway to write grants. And we also then are having our fall fundraising drive. And you gave me a perfect little T-ball, right? <laughs> to, you know, take a swing at this right now. But so on uh, November 12th, uh, Saturday, November 12th, it's going. we're going to ha- host a 12-hour webcast-a-thon. And we are inviting guest speakers from uh, various segments of the education sphere, instructional designers, developers, and everybody kind of in between, and maybe even and some outliers, to come in and, and answer one specific question. And the question is, uh, what impact will you make? Because we very much view the work we do allows people to make an impact. Mm-hmm. And so we'd like to hear from those that are, are doing cool things to talk about how do they view their work in terms of the impact it, it gives to social causes, nonprofits, or, or or whatever. And so through that fundraising, uh, or through those that webcast-a-thon, that, that tied with that is then a, a fundraising um, campaign. And so we've got a GoFundMe page uh, where you can go and contribute, donate to your ability or your your desire for, um, for, for us as a charitable institution. And we are a 501c3 charity, so it's a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. All right. Fantastic. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. It's cool. And it will be cool. I think it'll be a cool day. Um, I love web webcasts and obviously you, you like podcasts because I think you really give people a chance to um, to share what's important with them. And that's mm-hmm. really our our main goal is like let people really share what they think is the impact they're making as well as the impact that needs to be made to help make the world a better place. Good stuff. Good stuff. So last but not least, Jennifer, where can people catch up with you? So I've got all the usual spots. Um, I'm, I'm certainly on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter. Um, Twitter, I'm at Jen M and Facebook. We have uh, Designers for Learning. Actually, we have a Facebook group. We also have a LinkedIn group, which is we started with the zero a couple months ago. We're already up to 400 designers or or students who have found us, which I think can be a, a cool place to build that community that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. So I'm in all those places and I'll give you links to those that you can can drop in the show notes. And also, as I mentioned, I have my portfolio at jennifermadrill.com and uh, I do my best to keep it up. So I'll, I'll be in a couple of uh, conferences this fall that people can maybe find me. I'll be at AECT, um, which is Association of Education Communications and Te- Technology. Um, that's in Las Vegas in October. And then I'll also be at the Open Ed Conference in Richmond, Virginia in November. So if you happen to be there, stop by and say hi. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Jennifer. Oh, this is a wonderful opportunity. I love what you're doing. It's very cool. You're learning a lot and you're also sharing. I I love, it's like my favorite combo. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Love it. Love it. (laughs) I love what Jennifer and her team are doing with Designers for Learning. And I really, really hope that it becomes one of our de facto communities as instructional designers. I mentioned a great article from Mike Montero on what design students should demand from their education so they aren't wasting their money. And some of the things he advocates is this practice on the business side, the consulting side of design. The crux of what all designers, ourselves included, are meant to do is solve problems. And we can't do that if we don't ask the right questions and communicate effectively. While challenges like those on Articulate or those you make up yourself are super useful for owning your development chops, and I stand by that recommendation, there's nothing like interacting with clients for getting that all-too-essential consultation and design practice. If you're an ID student looking to get hands-on experience, and I know there are a ton of you out there, check this out. Share it with your program and faculty members and create real-world solutions. 
I would also love for you guys to offer up some of your ideas into the kind of learning and making experience you'd like to see from a community like Designers for Learning. Do you hesitate in sharing your designs and experiences online? Why? What's stopping you? How can we create a learning and creating and sharing experience that resonates with ID students and newbies? You can tweet Jennifer, she's at Jen M, and me, I'm at AnthChris, and give us your insight on what you'd like to see from an online service learning experience like this. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Please do go out there and share the word about Designers for Learning with anyone you think might benefit. And I will talk to you again soon. Take care.